Well, it's good to see everybody here today. There's lots going on in our congregation right now. Lots of you have a lot of things uh, happening. Wow, you're kind of angled, angled weird. Sorry. Yeah. You're like on a, like on a bus or something. <laughs> you can have a kink in your neck at the end of the service. <laughs> All right. But I know a lot of you, a bunch of you, are going through a bunch of stuff, and I hope that the word of the Lord and that the fellowship of this service uh, ministers to you this morning. We are continuing our series through the book of Exodus. We have a little mini-series that we're going to do here uh, through the Ten Commandments. Pastor Mike started last week with the First Commandment, and I will uh, continue that series this morning with the Second Commandment against idolatry. So you can join me in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, First of all, I'd like to address the issue again here of why should we even study the Old Testament law? We just did a whole bunch of stories that were really fun and we learned a lot of good theology from them, but now we hit a section of scripture where people often start to drag if they decide to read through the entire Bible. I don't know if you've ever done that. You think, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and then you get about halfway through Exodus, and then you hit Leviticus, and you start start thinking, how is this relevant to me? Why should I be reading this? Some of it is very, very odd. When we study the Old Testament law, we need to remember that Jesus initiated a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and mankind. And the result of that is that none of the Old Testament law is in force. None of the Old Testament law is in force. As Luther said, the law of Moses is no longer binding on us because it was given only to the people of Israel. Luther called Moses our teacher, but not our lawgiver. And the New Testament tells us over and over again that we've been set free from the law, as we see Paul saying over and over, we've been set free from the law. We live under a different authority. As Paul says in Galatians, the law of Christ now rules us. And the Old Testament prophets expected that this would happen. Jeremiah wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at the covenant that was written at that time, on that day, so to speak, when God led them out of the land of Egypt. But God promised to make a new covenant. When he sent Jesus Christ, he did make a new covenant. So here's one way to think about this. Sometimes the New Testament teaches something that we also see in the Old Testament law, like condemning adultery or lying or stealing or like taking care of the poor, as we see through uh, Deuteronomy and so forth. Uh, You see both You see this both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, same thing. And this makes sense because God wrote both of these covenants. He wrote the entire Bible. But when that happens, that law is binding on us. It's binding on us as a command because it appears in the New Testament. We have been set free from the Old Covenant, including the Mosaic Law, including the Ten Commandments. Romans 6.14 says, you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 7.6 says, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. 
Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that's an important verse. Let me read that again. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That last phrase is important. To everyone who believes. The end of the law to everyone who believes. The law still condemns people who reject Christ. In fact, this is very helpful during evangelism. You might say something like, look, friend, you, you have broken these Ten Commandments. You have not shared God's concern for justice and compassion in society as we see all through the Old Testament law. You have broken God's law and you therefore deserve punishment. Even children can understand this kind of logic. They see when something is not fair and we were made to read this law. And find ourselves deficient, as Paul writes in Romans 7, For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's one of the best sections of Scripture. Then he busts into Romans chapter 8. So what the law does is it reveals our sin and it reveals our need for a new covenant, a new arrangement with God. It reveals our need for a savior. And the same thing happens for believers as well, except for us, it is not a condemning message, but a reminder of our great salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, we learn a lot about ourselves by reading the law. We also learn a lot about the law's author, the law shows us God's holiness. The law shows us, shows us his compassion and his order and his grace and so much more. This is why people love the law. Sometimes as New Testament believers, we speak only in negative terms about the law. And yet so many of the mature people of Scripture speak very positively about the law. Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In verse 97, it says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. In verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And so as believers, we love the law and we preach the law and we study the law on mornings like this. The law tells us the truth about God. It tells us the truth about ourselves and it shows us our glaring need for Christ. But as believers, it is not binding on us. It is ended. It is only when the New Testament reiterates a law that we consider it binding. For example, the Old Testament contains all kinds of food laws. And so we ask ourselves, uh, you know, this tells us some interesting things about God, about him wanting us to be pure and so on. And we'll look at that in detail when we get there in a couple of months. But then we ask ourselves about these food laws. We say, well, what does the New Testament say about these laws? And of course, the New Testament abolishes these laws. We also read about God's concern for the poor throughout the Old Testament law. And so we ask ourselves, well, what does God, what does the New Testament say? What does Christ, what does Paul, what do the other New Testament writers say about God's concern from the poor? And what we find in the New Testament in regard to those laws is that the specific regulations and directions are abolished, but the overarching principle remains in place. God and God's people take care of the poor. And so we do this with all through the law. We ask ourselves, what does the New Testament say about this? Is it still binding on us? Is there some kind of overarching principle that applies while maybe some of the specifics have been abolished? And we do the same for these Ten Commandments, almost all of which appear in the New Testament, including this second commandment, which we can now explore here together, beginning 
in verse 1, and we'll get a running start at it. The second commandment actually begins in verse 4, probably. We're actually not sure exactly where the numbers go. Augustine and Luther and the Westminster divines and even Jewish teaching puts the numbers in different places. So we're not exactly sure if verse 3 is part of that commandment, uh, but, uh, but it doesn't matter because uh, the doctrine is very clear. God is exclusively God, and he does not share the throne. So let's read him explain this here. I'll start in verse 1 of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." So again, this, uh, this law is sometimes combined with verse 3, which says, you shall have no other gods. And that makes sense. I'm not exactly sure where the numbers should be. But again, this doctrine is clear. God is exclusively God. He does not share the throne. And so in these verses, it's one of the longest commandments, and it's also one of the first, maybe the first, or maybe the second commandment here. And there are essentially two things that we get from this section. Two things. First of all, don't worship any other gods. Only worship Yahweh. That would be one way of summarizing this passage. And the second thing we see here is do not associate Yahweh with any created thing. And that would be ridiculous and offensive because he is the creator and he cannot be represented by anything in his creation. So we have both of these things going on here. There's a twofold meaning of this teaching against idolatry. First of all, don't worship any other gods, only worship Yahweh. And second, when you worship Yahweh, don't associate him with any created thing, which would be offensive because he is the creator and he is spirit and he is beyond his creation. Now, it's interesting to me that he does not say don't worship any other gods because there aren't any other gods. Isn't that interesting? The Bible tells us elsewhere that God is the only God, but he doesn't say so here. He says, have no other gods before me. He says, do not worship them. And I wonder if God handles it this way in the commandment because many powerful things compete for human worship, including demonic powers like the ones that God flattened during the 10 plagues. And so what this does, this command covers all kinds of things that may replace God in our hearts, so-called gods, we might say. We see other gods and idolatry condemned all through the Bible. This was the sin that led to the destruction and exile of the Jewish people in a few hundred years. And even John the Apostle ends his first epistle with these words, Beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. So this is an important thing we see all through Scripture. It's not just in the Ten Commandments. It's not just in the law. It's not just in the Old Testament. But this is a primary sin that we see identified all through Scripture. And so it is very binding on us. So first of all, what I'd like to do here is identify what idolatry is and why it's sinful. And then I'd like to look at how it expresses itself in a believer's life and how we can defeat it. So first of all, why is idolatry so sinful? 
Luther defined idolatry as whatever your heart clings to and relies upon. That is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. All right. So a good definition of idolatry, if you're writing notes in the margin of your Bible or something like that, I think that's a great quote from Martin Luther. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon. In other words, anything can end up being an idol. Anything, person, or experience can be an idol. And what makes that thing idolatrous is how our heart clings to it. Oftentimes, idols can be very good things. And this is a mistake that we make when we first start thinking about idolatry. We think, well, it must be just greed or it must just be some bad, negative, horrible thing. But actually, idolatry is usually something good that we have warped into a false savior or something that we simply love too much. Brian Rossner says that idolatry is an attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, trust, and obedience. J.I. Packer defines idolatry as anything that anyone allows to run his life. It is life's basic loyalty. So idolatry is not just an ancient problem with little figurines or shrines or something like this, and we say, well, I don't have a little shrine to Buddha in my house, and so therefore I don't need to pay attention to this particular command. Uh, but this is, this is not an ancient problem. It is a human problem relating to our desire for safety and provision and position and for peace and so on. And idolatry is sinful. We see in verse 5, it's one of the only uh, commands that explains why it's sinful. And we see this in verse 5. Idolatry is sinful because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealousy is a good thing in intimate relationships. There's just no room for a third party in intimate relationships, like a marriage, for example. God wants that kind of exclusive primary place in our hearts. And so he often uses marriage as an illustration or a metaphor of the kind of relationship that he wants to have with his people. Second Corinthians 11 verse 2 says, this is Paul speaking to the church, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. David Pallison helps us to identify idolatry within us with questions like these. He calls these x-ray questions. And if you see in the notes that you have or the, uh, the sermon discussion questions, I've given you a link to an online uh, version of his x-ray questions. He has many more. But let me just give you a few questions that he gives us to identify some of the idols that we may have. He asks these questions. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? He says, what do you feel like doing? What do you organize your life around? What would bring you the greatest pleasure, happiness, and delight? What do you pray for? What do you talk about? What are your priorities? Where do you find your identity? What instinctively feels right to you? By asking these kinds of questions, these x-ray questions, so to speak, we can begin to identify the idols in our hearts, the things that we simply love more than God. And these kinds of questions can be very helpful to us. It can help us identify what our hearts cling to. Usually these things are very good things, beautiful aspects of creation that we've warped into a God replacement as a false savior. Now, I think Psalm 115, which Jake read earlier, is very interesting because it's all about idolatry. 
And if you'd like to join me there, you can in Psalm 115. I'm going to read a few verses here because this is so interesting what the psalmist says about idols. He begins in verse 3 and he says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And then you have a contrast with idols. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throats. You can imagine this. You know what an idol looks like. You've seen them. You can see this little wood or this metal uh, figurine. It has eyes, but it can't see with them. Uh, can't even make a sound with its, with its throat. In verse 8, it says, Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Let me draw out a couple of things here. The psalm is comparing God to idols, right? The one true God, verse 3, is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In other words, he actually exists. He's in the heavens, and he has this unmatched power. And how does, he, how does he use his unmatched power? How does God use his unmatched power? Verse 9, as a help and as a shield. This is something that Paul prays for people to see. In Ephesians chapter 1, he prays that people would see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so God has this unmatched power. He actually exists, and he uses his power to save and to redeem his people. But idols have no such power. They have eyes, but they can't see you. They have ears, but they can't hear you. And they are impotent toward us. They may have some power. Again, idols are often very good things, things that we may need. And yet, they are not a dependable help and shield. And then you have this in verse, um, verse 8. The psalmist says, those who make them become like them. This would be very interesting for you to discuss in your shepherd groups. Those who make idols become like idols. What do you think that means? That's a scary statement. It's actually a condemning statement when we see uh, this idea of ears to hear and Eyes to see all through scripture, it's dealing with the issue of idolatry. It seems that this is the just desserts that idolaters get, is that they become people who may have eyes, but they can't see, and they have ears, but they can't hear. Greg Beale writes this about idolatry. He says, what you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. What you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. You see, we were designed as people who would reflect our God. So if you look at a believer, you ought to see in this believer's life, you ought to see God. You ought to see Christ-likeness. You ought to see indications of God's glory and what God does in a life and gospel-like behavior. We are imaging beings. We reflect what we love. And if we love God, we reflect God. We become like him. Our eyes are open to his ways. Our eyes are open to hurting people. Our eyes are open to reality. But if we love idols, we reflect and resemble those idols. Our ears and our eyes and our hands become impotent to the things that God put us here to do, to reflect his glory, to take care of each other. The things that we idolize make us closed off to the realities of our hearts, to the realities of God, 
and to the realities of the world around us. Idols grip our hearts so that we can't do what God called us to do in relationships. Idols make us impotent to live the life that God created us to live. So you might have seen this uh, sometimes in your home. I can imagine times where there might be something that I'm quite frustrated about, something that has become idolatrous to me, and so I'm very frustrated about this. And then what happens? One of my kids wants to go swimming with me in the pool, or one of my kids wants to play a game or something. Well, my eyes are closed to them. My ears are closed to them because I'm so worked up and wrapped up in this thing that I love so much that it has dominated my heart so that I can't love my child. And so I'll say, I'm busy right now. I need to do something because basically I'm in too bad of a mood to play with you right now. An idol has gripped my heart. Something that I think that I need more than God in order to satisfy me. And the result of that is that my eyes and my ears are closed just like the idol, just like this impotent idol that cannot save, that cannot see and that, and, and that what this makes me then is impotent to do what I'm supposed to do, to do what I'm called to do as a husband, as a father. So this is an interesting verse here, I think. Those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. If God has the place he's supposed to have in our hearts, in our affections, then as the hymn says, the things of earth grow strangely dim. It's not that we suddenly don't care about anything in this world, but they're put in an ordinate place. And we're able to do what it is that God has called us to do, both reflecting his glory and also taking care of the people around us. It's the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what we were put here to do. But we're not going to be able to do that. Our eyes and our ears and our hands and everything is going to be impotent in regard to our main purpose if idols have the primary place in our hearts. Well, so how do we overcome this? There have been probably a hundred books written on this subject in the last uh, five or ten years. It's become kind of a popular subject. Tim Keller's written a lot on this, and uh, I've quoted Greg Beal. He's written probably my favorite book on this subject, uh, and many of you have read uh, uh, How People Change, a book that's in our uh, in our bookstore and in our libraries. There's a lot of answers to this. So I'd like to suggest a couple of things here that maybe you haven't thought about if you've uh, heard some of this sermon before. C.S. Lewis has a collection of letters that he wrote to friends and colleagues and so on. And and, uh, he wrote this to a friend. He said, I agree with you very strongly about the necessity of trying as hard as we can to obey the apostolic rejoice always. And I think we sin by needless neglect of this as often as by anything else. The attempt to obey it is at present one of my three morning resolutions each day. I had not realized its importance till recently. And then that's the end of his letter. What are the other two resolutions? Wouldn't you love to know? Like he doesn't even say. But he's got three morning resolutions. So you can imagine him. And you've seen pictures. He's kind of a chubby British guy, and you can imagine him kind of waking up in the morning and kind of, you know, shuffles his feet over the side of the bed, and what's the first thing he thinks about? He's got three resolutions, and we're not sure what the other two were, but one of them was this rejoice always. He says, uh, trying as hard as we can to obey the apostolic rejoice always, and I think we sin by needless neglect of this as often as by anything else. 
So he's not starting his day necessarily with a task list sort of prayer. All He's thinking through the things that he's got to do. God, help me do this. God, help this be successful and so on. There's nothing wrong necessarily with that prayer. But what he's actually doing is he's praying, God, help me to be a certain kind of person, however my day ends up. Because we all know, right, we've lived long enough, even if you're seven, right? You've lived long enough to know that days often don't go how you hope they will. And so if all of your heart is banked on the day going in a certain way and your only prayer is for things working out how you want them to, well, there's a huge piece of the Christian life that we've missed. So let me suggest that we add to these morning prayers this resolution of C.S. Lewis. Instead of a task list prayer, God help this and that and the other thing to work out, instead, let the first thing that pops into your mind say, God, help me to be a rejoicing, joyful person. Well, now, how is that possible? Do we do that just by saying, darn it, this all stinks, but I'm going to be happy anyway, or I'm going to pretend? Well, no. What we do is we reflect on a glorious God a gracious God, this God who has immeasurable power to hear and to see the realities of my life and everything else that's going on. And so we reflect on this God. And the result of that is that we begin to rejoice. Man, he's paying attention to what's going on. He knows what's going on. He has this immeasurable power. And that's where our joy can come from. Christopher Wright, who's also written a lot on idolatry, he says, few things can be more important for the mission of the church of Jesus Christ than that those who claim his name should be like him by taking up their cross, denying themselves, and following him in the paths of humility, love, integrity, generosity, and servanthood. Again, a good resolution to start our day. Thinking about, look, if I'm supposed to reflect God, if I reflect the things that I love, I need to be loving God. So let's think about what God is like. What is God like? God cares about the people. God cares about the church. God cares about hurting people. God cares about my God-given roles. He's put me in a family or he's put me in a church or he's put me in a community to do certain things. Uh, What is God like? God sees. God uh, asks us to take up our cross like Jesus did as a sacrifice for uh, each other. God uh, calls us to humility and love. And so these are, are good resolutions to begin our day. See, God is all satisfying in his many glorious attributes, as King David so often says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you. So even in the Old Testament, there's so much that we learn about God that is all satisfying, but it becomes, it becomes exponentially bigger in the New Testament. In the New Covenant, we find this refuge and joy and peace in Jesus Christ. You remember these words, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. That's why We are able to love God above all earthly treasures. That's even why we're able to fear him above all earthly powers. He is above all things. He is the creator and he deserves, he is worthy of the primary place in our heart. So this second commandment is important for all of us. It's important uh, for these ancient Jews as they are just getting to know God. They're standing there at Mount Sinai. There's thunder and lightning and fire and smoke. Scary experience. And here we are even as New Testament believers coming to a totally different mountain. One 
where we have angels rejoicing and Jesus Christ who paid for our sins and makes it possible for us to walk boldly into the presence of God. All of us, all people on earth need to deal with this issue that God is God and there is no other and he does not share his throne. And idolatry is not just these little figurines that we we may think, well, I don't live in that kind of a culture so I don't have to pay attention to this particular command. No, all of us are sinners and all of us are tempted to love things more than God. We were created to worship him, and God is jealous for that primary place of worship. And the challenge of this life is to love God so completely that the things of this earth lose their grip on our hearts. We're still able to interact. I'm not calling us all to uh, a monastic life where we all go off into the wilderness and get rid of all of our things, although that may be healthy for us in order to break ourselves of some of the addictions that we have. But what I am calling us to do is to make sure that we understand who God really is, to make sure that we love him above all the other things in our lives. Ironically, when we do that, we can interact with the things of this world in meaningful ways, in powerful ways, really hearing, really seeing, really serving like Christ. Let me close in prayer. God in heaven, you are a great and glorious God, and you deserve to be worshipped above all things. And God, we confess that there are many people, things, and experiences in this world that we sometimes just care about more than you, uh, more excited about than you, more fearful of than you. And God, I pray that you would help us to truly know you, help us to know your immeasurable power toward us who believe, help us to remember your steadfast love. I pray that you would give us a, a, a true and clear vision of your glory and your grace, so that we can love you with our whole hearts. And I pray that you would help us to reflect you throughout this life, rather than having closed eyes and ears and hands to all the things that we need to be doing, Lord. I pray that you would make us into people that reflect who you are. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you like to stand? And we'll sing a couple more songs together and then celebrate communion.